You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. So friends, it is now my absolute joy and privilege uh, to welcome our guest speaker today, uh, Dr. J.D. Atkins from Tyndale Seminary. Uh, I mentioned to you, I think, that uh, his PhD, his research was done in the resurrection. So I thought, hey, what better to have somebody like J.D. come and speak to us today on Resurrection Sunday. J.D., uh, we pray God's blessing on you. Please come and share with us. God's word. Thank you, JD. I love the Easter stories. I spent over a decade studying them, researching them, writing about them, and they never cease to amaze me. Even after all this time, they still surprise me. Even the famous story of Doubting Thomas that we've heard over and over and over again, it still has so much to say to us. So this morning, I want to share with you four surprises from the Thomas story, four surprises that Easter has in store for us. There's the, the surprising skepticism of Easter, the surprising confession of Easter, the surprising humility of Easter, and the surprising surrender of Easter. First, the surprising skepticism of Easter. You know, one of the things about Doubting Thomas is that he wasn't really a doubter. Doubters are people who believe in something initially and then later have second thoughts. That's not the story of Thomas. Thomas was not a doubter. He was a skeptic. He wasn't having second thoughts. No, he refused to believe in the first place. The other apostles tell him that they've seen the risen Lord, but he refused to believe. Thomas knew that Jesus had predicted the resurrection. He knew the, the tomb was empty. And yet he refused to believe the eyewitness testimony of 10 of his closest friends. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's not the statement of someone who's having doubts. That's the statement of a determined skeptic. He refused to believe without physical evidence. Like a coroner inspecting the wounds of a murder victim, Thomas wants to perform an autopsy on the risen body of Jesus. Now, when people hear and read the stories of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels, today. They often say, ah, that's a nice story, but we can't really believe it happened. We can't believe it really happened. We can't believe stories like this, stories of miracles and resurrections. These are silly myths 
made up by ancient people who were naive and superstitious. They believed in miracles back then because they didn't have science like we do today. Today, we know better. Friends, this is an egregiously false stereotype of ancient peoples. If you study ancient peoples and you study what they read, you find that while they may have been a little open, more open-minded than us modern people, the ancients were still quite skeptical of miracles. And there was one particular kind of miracle about which the ancients were especially skeptical, the miracle of resurrection. So don't be fooled by false stereotypes. When it comes to raising the dead, most ancient people were just as skeptical as modern, scientifically-minded people. This is one of the reasons why the Thomas story is so important for us today. Thomas breaks the stereotypes. He demands pretty much exactly the same kind of physical proof that modern scientists would want. But Thomas is not the only ancient person that breaks the stereotype. Now, this story about Thomas is just the tip of the iceberg. You see, skepticism about the ancient, or sorry, skepticism in the ancient world about the resurrection was widespread. Let me give you just a little glimpse, just a brief glimpse, because I only have a little time, below the surface so that you can see just how massive this iceberg is. You see, when Paul told the ancient Greeks in Athens about the resurrection, do you know what they said? They mocked him. It's ridiculous. When Paul told Festus, a Roman governor, about the resurrection, Festus said, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. The Sadducees, one of Jesus' other opponents, they made it a doctrinal requirement to believe there is no resurrection. Now, perhaps you'll object and you'll say, well, all those examples you just cited, J.D., they're all the cultural elites, the Athenian philosophers, the high-ranking Roman politician, and the Sadducees. They were sophisticated, educated people. And so it's not surprising that they didn't believe in the resurrection. But weren't most of the early Christians from the lower classes? Surely the common people were more naive and more likely to believe the resurrection. Not really. We have plenty of evidence of common people as well. Reading John's gospel by itself might give you the impression that Thomas was the exception. But if you read Luke's gospel also, you'll realize that Thomas wasn't the exception. Far from it. He was the norm. See, contrary to popular belief, the other apostles had even more trouble believing than Thomas did. When Thomas is offered physical proof and invited to touch the risen Jesus, Thomas is convinced immediately and confesses, my Lord and my God. But in Luke 24, when the other apostles are given the same evidence, 
And Jesus says to them, touch and see. Luke tells us that they still disbelieved. Most of the apostles were everyday common folk with limited education. And yet, they were even more skeptical, even harder to convince than Thomas. These ancient fishermen were more skeptical than a lot of most modern people today. Think about it. If you ask a modern skeptic, say, say all right, here's a scenario. Say you could go back in time and see it all for yourself. Say you had the opportunity, like Thomas, to actually touch the risen Jesus and verify it for yourself. Would that be enough proof for you? Would that be enough to convince you? Now, if you say that to most skeptics, they'll at least hypothetically say, yes, sure, that would, that would probably be enough. But according to Luke, even with all of that, they had trouble believing. I don't have time to tell you the stories of other skeptics like Paul and Mary Magdalene and James, the brother of Jesus. But the point is that virtually all the original eyewitnesses were skeptical. We therefore can't dismiss their Easter stories as silly ancient legends and myths made up by naive, superstitious people. These are stories that were told by skeptics. Skeptics who were so utterly convinced that the resurrection really happened, that they were willing to give up their jobs, they got, suffered torture, and most of them died as martyrs for their faith. We can't dismiss it as legend. So that's the first surprise of Easter. Thomas is just the tip of the iceberg. But if the skepticism of Easter is surprising, the confession of Easter is perhaps more surprising. You see, Thomas got more than he bargained for. Thomas was demanding physical evidence of the resurrection. He wanted to inspect the wounds. But when he actually saw them, Thomas realized that the wounds were evidence of something far more profound. What do I mean? Well, on Easter, Christians around the world in many countries employ a traditional confession on Easter Sunday. Let me demonstrate it because I know some, many of you know it. If I say, Christ is risen, how are you to respond? Exactly. Very well done. But that is not what Thomas says. Thomas's Easter confession is much more exalted. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, this is surprising. Thomas demanded to physically inspect the wounds, presumably to, to confirm the tangible reality of the resurrection body. But instead of confessing the resurrection of Jesus' human nature, Thomas confesses the reality of his divine nature. What? What is going on here? Friends, this passage is so familiar to us that most of us miss this surprising, this absolutely astonishing plot twist. Are you starting to see the disconnect? Jesus says to Thomas, touch me 
inspect my wounds. And then Thomas replies, oh, you must be God. What? Thomas has offered rock-solid proof of Jesus' humanity, but he proclaims Jesus' divinity. Either Thomas is making an illogical jump, something you wouldn't expect of a skeptic, or he's seeing something that we're missing. How does seeing Jesus' wounds convince Thomas that Jesus is God? What are we missing? You see, either John has a very different notion of divinity than we do, or there is something more going on in Jesus' wounds than meets the eye. As it turns out, both are true. For the past month or so, we've been reading through the Gospel of John, and we've noted that John emphasizes Jesus' divinity far more than the other Gospels do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they never explicitly call Jesus God. Sure, they drop all kinds of hints all over the place, but they never come out and say it directly. But in John's gospel, Jesus' divinity is the main topic of discussion. The big question in John's gospel is, how can Jesus, being a man, also be God? Over and over again in John's gospel, Jesus makes implicit claims to deity. For example, Jesus, we've learned, refers to himself as the I Am, that special divine name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. He says things like, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he says things like that, the people pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. At one point in chapter 10, they make their reasoning explicit. They say, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Their point is clear. If Jesus is a man, he can't also be God. Now, according to Jesus, the reason why his opponents can't recognize his deity is that they have a perception problem. He says they can't recognize him because they are judging him by appearances only. They're judging him, he says, according to the flesh. In other words, they see his human physicality and conclude that he can't be divine. Now, this makes Thomas's confession all the more amazing. For Thomas sees the wounds in Jesus' flesh, and concludes, he must be God. How can this be? You see, throughout John's gospel, he's trying to reset our expectations of how God reveals himself. And to help us understand that, John likes to connect Jesus with various Old Testament stories where God reveals himself to people in some visible way. There's a technical term for this kind of story that we talk about in seminary, and it's a theophany. As you read through John's gospel, you find lots of allusions to famous Old Testament theophany stories. In John 8, he alludes to uh, Genesis 18, when God appears to Abraham in human form. In John 1, he alludes to Jacob's dream of a ladder. In John 12, 
uh, he alludes to the prophet Isaiah's vision of God in his glory. There are a whole bunch of these, but I want us to look at one example closely. See, back in the introduction to John's gospel, John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled, among us. You see, John is alluding to the Exodus, when God descended in a cloud onto the tabernacle and dwelt with the nation of Israel during all those years in the wilderness. Do you know what John is trying to say to us here? John is introducing Jesus' whole life as one extended theophany, like the one the Israelites experienced in the wilderness for 40 years. Only instead of a, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire in the wilderness, this time God appeared in the flesh. The difficulty with this idea is that God reveals himself indirectly. Jesus looks like a normal human being. But if Jesus' whole life is one extended theophany, then everybody who meets him experiences a theophany without even realizing it. But in the Gospel of John, nobody gets it. Nobody understands it. Not even Jesus' own disciples. Read with me in ch chapter 14. You see, when Thomas asked Jesus about the way to God, Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father. Henceforth, you know him and have seen him. This is a mysterious word. Do you understand what Jesus is trying to say here? He's trying to teach Thomas. He says to Thomas, you've already seen the Father. What? Yeah, Philip doesn't get it either. So Philip, he goes bold. He says, he, requ he requests a theophany. He says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. I love Philip's boldness here, his honesty. It's so relatable. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I'll believe in God if he just gives me proof, if he just reveals himself to me. I want to see him. I want something tangible. Then I'll believe. Ah, Philip. But look how Jesus responds to Philip. It's absolutely mind-blowing. He says, have you been with me so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? In other words, Philip, you're asking for a theophany, but you don't get it. You already have one. I am the theophany. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is a total paradigm shift. And they, the disciples, they struggle to wrap their heads around it. But Jesus promises that it will all make sense after his death and resurrection. He says, yet in a little while, the world will see me no more. That's because he's going to die. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. That's a reference to the resurrection. In that day, Jesus says, you will know that I am in the Father. 
So in other words, they're going to finally get it. They're going to finally understand after the death and resurrection. And that's what happens for Thomas. After the resurrection, Thomas finally gets it. But how does that work? The clue is in the wounds of Jesus. You see, as we've noticed, according to the passage, Thomas makes his great confession, my Lord and my God, when he sees the wounds in his hands and side. But how does seeing the wounds help? Jesus is the only gospel writer, or sorry, John is the only gospel writer to mention that a soldier takes a spear and stabs Jesus' side to confirm his, that he's dead. John mentions this event because for him it has a lot of theological significance. But if we want to understand what it means for John, we've got to go back to an earlier part of the gospel. You see, on more than one occasion, John hints to the reader that Jesus' divinity will somehow be revealed in the most unlikely of places in his crucifixion. Let me give you one key example of this from John 8.28. Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Now, so that's a, it's a bit of a cryptic statement, but let me just unpack it real quick. This language of lifting up in the ancient world was a euphemism for crucifixion. Lifting up means lifting up on a cross. And then, of course, Jesus says, then you will know that I am. Now, some of your modern translations might, might read, and they add the word he, and might say, then you will know that I am he. But the Greek doesn't have the he. It simply says, I am. This is another instance where Jesus is referring to the divine name. So if I put it all together, this is what Jesus is saying. When you crucify me, that is when my deity will be revealed. Now, when you get to John's crucifixion story, you're, you're, John's building the expectations. And you get to John's crucifixion story, and all of a sudden you're like, there's nothing miraculous in this story. I mean, Jesus doesn't jump down off the cross and show off his divine power. He dies. There's only one real hint, and it's a subtle hint, that points to Jesus' deity in the story. It's when the Roman soldier pierces his side. See, John tells us that, piercing, that this piercing fulfills an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah. This, this prophecy was highly controversial in the ancient world because if you read Zechariah in the original Hebrew, it clearly implies that God himself is being pierced. God is the one speaking and he says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And the ancient, Drew, the ancient Jews, they struggled with this. They struggled to understand this mysterious verse. How can God be pierced? God is spirit. He's immortal. He can't be pierced. So for years and years, they came up with all kinds of creative explanations for this verse. But it's only after Good Friday and Easter that Zechariah's crazy paradoxical prophecy finally makes sense. 
For it only works if Jesus is God in the flesh. And when Jesus is pierced, God himself is pierced. Then after the resurrection, Thomas looks on the one whom they've pierced. And when he does so, he sees the wounds and confesses, my Lord and my God. Do you understand? It's ironically the wounds that reveal his deity. This is a beautiful, brilliant irony. Because if the wounds reveal his deity, oh my, what does that tell us about deity? If the wounds reveal that Jesus is God, what does that say about God and what he is like? John answers this question in a letter that he wrote to the church not not long after he wrote his gospel. This is what he says. This is from 1 John chapter 4. He says, God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Put simply, the sacrifice on the cross reveals that God is love. Love is his very essence. It's the very core of who God is. And until you look at the wounds, until you realize he was pierced for you, you don't really know God. The wounds show who God is. He's not just loving, he is love. And to see the extent to which this is true, let's move on to the third surprise of Easter. The surprising humility of the God of Easter. You know, one of the surprising things about the risen Lord for ancient readers was how ordinary he was. See, there's this famous passage in the Old Testament about about resurrection, and it's in Daniel 12. And it tells us that those who are resurrected will shine like the stars. So if the apostles had invented the Easter stories, you would expect them to describe Jesus as glorious and shining. He'd have some sort of supernatural glow, like on the Mount of Transfiguration or something. But the Gospels depict him in the most mundane ways. He's so ordinary that Mary mistakes him for a gardener. He's so ordinary that the Emmaus disciples mistake him for just another traveler on the road. Even the angels at the empty tomb have shining clothes. But not the risen Jesus. In fact, not only is his body not shiny, it's got gaping holes in it. Think about it. Why would a resurrection body, a body that is no longer subject to death, still have wounds in it? In the ancient world, these wounds would have been scandalous. You have to remember they're crucifixion wounds. Crucifixion was not only the most painful 
way to die. It was also the most shameful way to die. Crucifixion was an act of public humiliation. They stripped you, then they nailed you to the cross naked, then put you up on display, up high up above the ground for all to see. And then they mocked you. One ancient critic, ancient pagan critic of the Gospels, when he read the Gospels, he ridiculed the risen Jesus for showing his wounds. Why? Because in doing so, Jesus was revealing the shameful marks of his punishment as a death row criminal. As Paul put it in his letter to the Corinthians, Christ crucified is foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. The wounds of the risen Jesus are yet another piece of evidence that the God of Easter is not a product of the human imagination. No one from an honor-shame culture like the ancient world would have made this up. In the minds of the ancients, no self-respecting God would allow himself to be shamed by puny humans. In their minds, no real God would come in weakness and shame. A real God for them would come in supernatural power and smite down those who disrespect him. But look how Jesus treats Thomas. Thomas, like the other disciples, was a deserter. They all fled when Jesus was arrested. And Thomas refuses to believe the other disciples and demands that Jesus subject himself to inspection. You know, in that culture back then, to believe Thomas, to disbelieve like Thomas did, was was to dishonor Jesus. But does Jesus discipline Thomas for his disrespect? Does he smite him for his disbelief? No. He has compassion on Thomas's skepticism, and he surrenders himself to Thomas's demands. Go ahead, Thomas. Put your finger here. Inspect my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The humility and compassion of Jesus here is astonishing. Here is the risen Lord of the universe, and he humbly surrenders himself to inspection to a wayward disciple who has dishonored him. Who would do that? Why would he do that? Well, we have the answer already. It's in the wounds. He loved Thomas. When he died on the cross for our sins, he died for Thomas's sins too. And this brings us to the last surprise of Easter. Thomas drops his conditions. He drops his demands. What do I mean? Well, see, at first, Thomas insists on touching the wounds. Only then will he believe. But when Jesus shows up and invites Thomas to touch, Thomas doesn't do it. See, contrary to popular opinion and famous artwork that's out there, Thomas doesn't actually reach out and touch the wounds. How do I know? Well, first, the text never says that he does. It just doesn't. But second, When you read what Jesus says in verse 29, he says, have you believed because you have seen me? He doesn't say, have you believed because you have touched me? 
but has, have you believed because you have seen me? The implication is clear. Thomas believed because he saw, not because he touched. This is surprising. Despite all Thomas's resistance, in the end, he didn't need to touch to believe. When he saw the wounds, his stubborn resolve melted away. He dropped his conditions and he surrendered in worship. My Lord and my God. Now, why does he do this? Our text doesn't tell us, but there are, are two hints, I think, that John, John's writing suggests that. And he's got two reasons, I think, for Thomas, one in the head and one in the heart. And these, I think, relate for us. First, the head. One of the purposes of the, uh, of the story is to help the readers, help us as readers, to realize that Thomas already had enough evidence to believe. That is why Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. See, before Jesus appeared the second time to Thomas, or sorry, the second time, Thomas was in the same position as us. He hadn't seen the risen Jesus for himself, but he had some basic evidence. He knew Jesus had predicted the resurrection, he knew the tomb was empty, and he knew he had multiple eyewitnesses claiming that he was alive. And as we've seen, their testimony is reliable. It's the testimony not of superstitious people, but of skeptics. Put simply, we don't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a Christian. The gospel doesn't ask for blind faith. It's faith based on evidence. But Thomas here had to learn an important lesson. And it's a lesson that we modern people need to learn as well. See, Thomas thought what he needed was absolute intellectual certainty. He thought he needed to know everything, have every last question answered before he could believe. That's why he demanded to touch and inspect. But in the end, he realized he didn't need to know absolutely everything. He just needed to know enough. Faith is not blind. It's based on evidence, but it's still faith. It still requires trusting God for the things we don't know. But I think there's a second reason why Thomas finally dropped his conditions and worshipped. And it's a more personal reason, a reason of the heart. Why do I say that? Because Thomas doesn't simply confess Jesus as Lord and God. He confesses my Lord and my God. Saving faith is personal. It's not merely intellectual. It's not merely about trusting facts. It is that, but it's much more. Saving faith is putting your trust in a person. But trusting people is hard. People have to work to earn our trust. And that's why the wounds are important. You see, when Thomas saw the wounds, he realized that Jesus had endured those wounds for him. The reason I say that is there's only one other time in the Bible when we're told that seeing the wounds of the risen Jesus prompted spontaneous surrender in worship. And it comes from Revelation chapter 5. John tells this vision in heaven that he sees a lamb standing, looking as if it had been slain. So you have a lamb standing, means it's alive, right? A slain lamb wouldn't be standing. But then 
It's looking as if it's been slain, which means it still has visible wounds. And in response, how does heaven respond? It breaks out in worship, singing to the lamb, telling him he's worthy because he was slain and because by his blood he ransomed people for God. You see, they worship when they see the wounds because they know that the wounds were endured for them. They know he paid the ransom for them. And the wounds are the proof. You see, we all approach God with conditions. We say, ah, I believe, I will believe if you do this for me, God. If you just answer my prayer, then I'll believe. If you just do a miracle for me, God. If you just heal my loved one, then I'll follow you. If you just solve this problem in my life, then I'll follow you. All right, as long as it doesn't hurt my career, God. I'll follow you. I'll become a Christian so long as I don't have to give up this pleasure or that pleasure. Whatever it is, we all come with conditions. Why do we come with conditions? Because we haven't learned to trust Him. That's why we need to look at the wounds. You can trust a God with wounds. Indeed, it's the only kind of God you can trust. When Thomas saw the wounds, he dropped his conditions. He surrendered to the one who surrendered everything for him. Now, in a moment, Paul's going to come up and lead us in a time of response with the Lord's Supper. But before he does, let me encourage you to reflect on the Lord's Supper in light of one more surprise in the Thomas story. A little over a week before Thomas meets the risen Jesus, Thomas shared a Passover meal with Jesus. And as you know, Jesus took a piece of bread and broke it and said, take, this is my body which is given for you. But what some of you may not know is that because it was Passover, the bread was unleavened. And when you prepare unleavened Passover bread, you pierce the dough with holes so that it keeps from rising. So Jesus takes bread pierced with holes and says to Thomas, take, this is my body which is given for you. And the next time Jesus meets Thomas after the resurrection. He again invites Thomas to take his body. But this time, it's not a symbolic piece of bread with holes in it. It's a real body pierced with holes. A body that was literally given for him. When Thomas saw the holes, when he saw the wounds, he realized what Jesus had done for him. He surrendered in worship. And you, too, will have the same opportunity. When you come to pick up the elements, remember what He has done for you. Drop your conditions and surrender in worship. There's these white uh, ribbons that are up here, and you might want to think of them as little white flags. You know, in a battle, when you wave the white flag, it's you surrendering. You might want to pick up these ribbons when you come up to take the elements. When you come up and you see the elements, 
Notice what he surrendered for you. And then pick up the ribbon as a symbol that you will surrender to him. Thank you, J.D. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.